Welcome to Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. This episode is moderated by my colleague, Carles Pasquale, Senior Vice President of Global Energy at IHS Market. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, my name is Carlos Pasquale, and welcome to Week Conversations presented by IHS Market. In this series, we have an opportunity to talk to leaders in energy, public policy, finance, and technology. And today we have an opportunity to speak with the Minister of Infrastructure, Claver Gatete of Rwanda. Minister Gatete, what a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, everybody may not know Minister Gatete's name, but his story is one you will want to hear and remember and understand as we take you through the journey of what Rwanda has done to manage economically through this pandemic and create a perspective for how it can thrive going forward. And so we'd like to take you through that economic journey, what it means for its energy system and its vision for the future. And Minister Gatete, if we can start with this question. You're a small landlocked country in Africa, surrounded by developing countries. What has Rwanda have to do to, to work through this pandemic and to create a perspective for its population that life can be better and it can grow again? Thank you very much. Uh, indeed, you're right. Um, when the pandemic struck and uh, it hit us, of course, in March, beginning of March, on the 14th uh, of uh, March of this year. And on the 21st of the same month, we had a lockdown for 45 days. And you can imagine having a lockdown and uh, surrounded by uh, four countries, Tanzania, Uganda, Congo, and Burundi. And we had to shut all the uh, borders, land borders, the air borders. And at the same time, we have to survive as a country. So the way we survived was uh, to make sure that we take very, very tough measures, especially health measures uh, during the time of the lockdown, but at the same time ensuring that there is a trade across the borders, uh, meaning that we had to agree with other countries that we take all the necessary measures to make sure that the truck drivers that are crossing our borders from Tanzania, which you call Central Corridor, from Uganda and Kenya, what you call the Northern Corridor, uh, that all the trucks from Uganda, from Tanzania, from Congo, they all have to make sure that they offload at the borders. And you have to make sure that we uh, design designated areas where the truck drivers uh, have to stay and how you offload and have, how to make sure that they comply with all the other necessary measures uh, of the health ministry. And those measures, of course, the basic ones in terms of uh, uh, not really distancing, but at the same time, they have to put on the masks, they have to wash their hands, they have, as the population was, was, was doing at the country level. But at the same time, I think what was very, very helpful within the population, we had to make sure that the, the leadership uh, was very incredible because there was this um, relationship between the population and the leaders and the population really, really worked very hard to make sure that they followed the instructions that we had given. In this case, is how we get the economy moving again, because the borders were facilitating the land transport, of course, 
but at the same time, uh, the movement was not, uh, uh, was not good enough to, to continue the economy. So the businesses were affected, and we had to make sure that we put a recovery fund in place to help the business community, but at the same time to help the vulnerable population of ours to make sure that they can survive, especially those who are depending on daily uh, activities for their own living. So we had to make sure that we take the measures to support the economy to continue, and also to help some of the companies that were being affected, especially those in the tourism sector, since the conferences were no longer taking place. So there were several measures, one can go on and on and on, but we had to change the way we live, the way we behave. And that's why the issue of technology here was very, very important. We had to make sure that we use the uh, e-trade, we use e uh, the services that were being provided uh, by uh, ICT, the payments were being done by ICT, we had to use the robots, we had to use the drones uh, to make sure that they can obviously sensitize the population. We, there were so many initiatives that, that were being taken uh, in order to make sure that the people behave, otherwise uh, it would have escalated. And that's why the numbers, our numbers are still low, at 4,832 uh, uh, people that have been affected so far with 29 people who unfortunately have lost their lives. Minister, it's interesting that you focus on this issue of trade as an opening point because it's not something that every country has followed. Many has shut, have shut down borders and, and reduced the amount of interaction with others. And you've seen it as a landlocked country as something which is essential to your survival. And there's an important lesson there. If we can build on that issue of trade, Rwanda has been a huge proponent of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. Does it still have life after this pandemic period? Are there prospects to move it forward? Yes, definitely. The, um, uh, uh, the trade across the African continent, as you know, was having a challenge for a long time. Trade within the African continent was in the range of 14 to 15%. But even trade between Africa and the rest of the world was much higher than that. So what we are trying to do was to see how to allow that kind of trade among the African countries, meaning the movement, the free movement of people, the free movement of goods, and also ensuring that the regional blocks that we have on the African continent can speak to each other, to allow the, pro the products, the services, everything to move freely. Now, during the pandemic, of course, there were restrictions on the travel by ordinary people across the countries because of the pandemic. And also the movement of goods were, of course, delayed because there are measures that have to be put in place. But the whole African countries, especially the heads of state who signed on this agreement, definitely they are highly determined to make sure that we have increased that kind of trade. And actually, that's the only one, that's the only way that uh, can boost uh, our economic growth. Nowadays, the main, the main trade is being uh, done within the regional communities, especially in our case, the East African community and the Great Lakes. That's where the trade is dominant. But of course, as we slowly open up, uh, with this pandemic slowing down, then the trade will continue at a higher pace. This is what everybody believes in, and this is what can only boost the economy. Before you took over as Minister of Infrastructure, you were Minister of Finance and Economic Planning. And from that time, you've been a champion of promoting the development of financial services and attracting private investment. 
It's challenging in any moment, but now with the pandemic, um, being a landlocked country, how difficult is it? How successful have you been to be able to bring stronger financial services and investment into Rwanda? Uh, indeed, you are right. For us to grow as an economy, we've chosen to become a service-led economy. And that means really using technology, science and technology to become really dominant in terms of driving the economy, given our comparative advantage. And at the same time, the financial services is very critical for us to be able to grow. Initially, we have very few insurance companies, we had a few banks, but now we have really boosted our stock market. We have uh, boosted our social uh, uh, security resources, and we put in place, uh, of course, our sovereign wealth funds and other funds that are now dominant here in one. But most importantly, we have put in place uh, a system of Rwanda becoming a financial hub, becoming the center for the financial services on the continent. And this way then, it will allow the trade within Rwanda itself, and also the trade between Rwanda and other countries as far as financial services are concerned. We are seeing this one happening. We are seeing the technology also uh, helping us. And that's why, by the way, in terms of, uh, um, of the services uh, here, if I say the payment system here in Rwanda, which is highly integrated, over 90% uh, financial access, we've seen it increasing 10 times during the COVID period. People, technology is now changing almost everything and is affecting all walks of life, from the normal uh, services that we get to the trade, it affects how industries work, it affects how, how government works, and, and other things. So we are seeing this one as a big element that's going to, to help us. And this one becomes the basis now for the for Rwanda to become a center for the financial services. That's where we see that's going to have a big impact. And that's why in the economy, the services is contributing 48% of the GDP. And we believe that by the 2050, it will be contributing 60% of GDP. And that's why we are making all the efforts to make sure that we can move forward, especially with science and technology and ICT as an enabler, but also as a business itself. Indeed, one area that you've had success in, in attracting private investment and bridges from the financial services side to manufacturing is in attracting Volkswagen to establish an electric vehicle and mobility hub in Rwanda. How did you convince Volkswagen to come to Rwanda? Well, we have attracted many big companies now um, in almost all the sectors, and one of them is Volkswagen for two reasons. One is environment related. Um, as a country that is promoting is that almost uh, the uh, leading in terms of environmental uh, conservation and uh, trying to reduce as much pollution as possible, we are tr trying to move away from the fuel-driven vehicles to electric vehicles. And uh, Volkswagen uh, is one of the most important companies that we wanted to work with in terms of, of doing that. But we had to provide incentives. We wanted to say, well, uh, for the vehicles, uh, especially the commonly driven vehicles, and for the public uh, vehicles, we want the manufacturing and the assembly to be taking place here in Rwanda. Not only the vehicles, but also the motorcycles. And so we managed to, call, to work with the um, uh, Volkswagen 
and we convinced them and uh, they have already started now working in Rwanda. And not only that, they are making money, but at the same time, we are providing the incentives to make sure that uh, uh, the cars are affordable because we've seen that the capital expenditure is quite high. And we also had to make sure that although the operational expenditure is low, but most people, they want to see the overhead, uh, the costs as they purchase the vehicles. So we had to come in as government and say, let's provide the incentives that would allow the people at least to test uh, the electric vehicles. The same thing that we've done uh, with, uh, uh, of course, motorcycles, and this has worked for us. We want to make sure that eventually the Rwandans understand the advantages of this as we try to reduce, uh, of course, the fuel importation as much as possible until uh, everybody understands that this is the way to go. This also complements other initiatives that we are doing in terms of the uh, environment uh, protection, but it is very critical because the numbers, the, the vehicles have been increasing almost on an annual basis for over 20%. And that's why Volkswagen has become very critical for us. But you have many other companies, including Ampersad for the motor, motorcycles, but also we have other vehicles which are being imported uh, with incentives. But eventually what you want is the, the companies located in Rwanda and producing from Rwanda and be, be able to target the regional market since Rwanda is in the center of the East African uh, uh, countries. It's a fascinating connection to the clean energy economy and I think the world probably doesn't still fully appreciate the importance that an electric motorcycle can have to the future and I'm sure my son is going to be lobbying me one for lobbying me for one in, in, in some time in the near future. But of course electric vehicles have to take us into the broader question of electricity and let me come back to that topic because it's central to your agenda now. You've been a champion as well for energy access in Rwanda. And in 1994, 1% of your population had access to electricity, and today it's about 66%. And you're on a journey to make it universal. As you proceed on that journey, what are the biggest challenges that are ahead of you? What's the focus of your strategy to be able to get that to 100%? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, indeed, because we want to make sure that, uh, and this is a target we have set ourselves, that by the 2024, must have reached 100%. But we are starting, we are starting from a, a low base, as you mentioned, 1% in 1994, 9% uh, in 2010, and now we are at 56%. But by doing that, we have to take certain measures. One is to make sure that we change behavior. The government used to be the producer of energy, and also we put in place uh, the infrastructure for transmission, for distribution, and then we sell the population. And we realized that this will take a long time, so we brought in the private sector. Mainly the, the energy that we are producing now is mainly produced by the private sector. That way we had a sharing arrangement in which we can move faster. Then secondly, it was not only a government that is a, um, Doing it, we had to combine the grid energy, but also with the off-grid. Grid meaning the solar that we, uh, we produce, but at the same time, the mini grids in the remote areas. And this is helping all the, uh, the entire population because the people in the remote areas have access and the people in urban areas also get access mainly uh, from the grid. That has helped. And as we move forward, 
We want also to change to make sure that in the distribution, the transmission lines, which are, are transporting the energy, the distribution lines, the substations, so that we can bring in also the private sector. Government can invest, but also the private sector can invest. We have already mapped what we need to do. We need 1.5 billion uh, US dollars in terms of uh, fulfilling the next stage uh, of uh, production, uh, in terms of uh, connecting the entire, all the industries and the people. We have now mobilized over 650 million US dollars. And now we are going to work with the private sector to come in. Actually, we are already talking with some industries, some companies who are coming in so that both private and public can work together to make sure that we achieve our objectives by the year 2024. We are very confident that this is going to work out. And we have everything now uh, in place in terms of preparation with our Rwanda Energy Group to make sure that we can move faster uh, than the way we have been doing. So we, we are very confident that we can reach 100%. Minister, one of the challenges for expanding energy access in many parts of the world has been that residential demand tends to be low um, simply because houses aren't connected and there's a limited capacity to pay. How have you managed to deal with that, the cost of expanding access and yet the reality of the limited capacity to pay on the part of the population? What business strategy has worked for you? Uh, we don't look at the electricity uh, in isolation. We are the minister that is, ministry that is in charge of infrastructure, meaning we are in charge of the whole entire transport. We are in charge of energy. We are in charge of water, sanitation. We are also uh, in, in charge of housing. So they all go hand in hand. We've seen that where we put the roads and other infrastructure areas, we see development happening. And with that kind of development, one of the ingredients they need badly is energy. We've seen it in the rural areas, how they really have how they need energy. And it transforms the entire small scale SME manufacturing very, very fast. So we have a two-tier system. We have the people who have the capacity to purchase. We have the ordinary people who are very poor in the remote areas who need subsidy by the government. Those are taken care of by the uh, off-grid uh, energy. And the off-grid energy, uh, which is 48%, that is the target, and 52% from the grid, you find that that combination helps in terms of addressing those who have, who can afford and those who cannot afford. But also we target the whole entire uh, industries that come on board and now we are doing it deliberately to make, to make sure that the energy that we produce can be absorbed. We are very happy with your study which has helped us in terms of doing that. But for the ordinary people, we, are, we have that kind of dual system of the off-grid and on-grid which is helping in terms of ordinary people uh, affording. And at the same time, the energy, we are trying to make it very cost effective by making sure that the production cost is very low. And with the production cost being very low, a combination of public and private, it helps in terms of bringing the cost down significantly. And so it can be afforded, we are looking at it in terms of being competitive at the regional level, not only getting the crystal, but it has to be affordable electricity. And building on the issue of production cost, a critical factor is the energy mix itself. At this stage, how do you see the energy mix of Rwanda evolving over time? We are seeing Rwanda, we need clean energy. We need renewable energy. And that's why we're saying renewable energy has to be at least 60% uh, of the entire mix. But as we go forward, most of the energy for us 
is hypo, uh, followed by, of course, uh, methane gas, and then uh, renewable energy. But we are going forward. Going forward, we want to make sure that the clean energy is the energy that we have here in the country. Knowing, of course, our position as a country that is really very much into environmental protection. So that's the energy that we are, that we are, that we are kind of proposing. And that's what we are doing. If you see all the plans which are in progress, it's mainly hydro, whether it's regional energy, uh, whether it's domestic energy, and also methane gas plus the whole uh, new resources that we are doing, uh, especially uh, outside the grid. One of the things, Minister, that you've worked very hard on and we've had a chance to discuss in the past has been the importance of aligning supply and demand um, for, for power in particular and energy um, within Rwanda and ensuring that the power systems that you build up are realistic given the, the demand on, on within industry and within the economy. How are you addressing this in the future so that the levels of investment that you're seeking to drive are correctly aligned with the demand that you can expect within the economy? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, initially, when I was in the Minister of Finance, our biggest focus was making sure that we made energy available, whether it is expensive or cheap, because we are short of energy electricity for a long, long time. We never thought of the demand side. We thought the demand, once we produce the energy, the demand side will work out. But with your study, uh, supported by IHS, it was a wake-up call for all of us. And then we started thinking, okay, once we produce this energy, what happens? Who is going to consume this energy? We looked at all other countries, and we found most of the African countries had excess energy. They cannot sell it, maybe not because they have excess as such, but because they don't have a way of supplying that kind of excess, and it's absorbed by the treasury. So we realized that actually we would have the same situation. And that's why your study was extremely helpful for us, showing us even where, what we need to do to make sure that we can increase the demand side. So for us, it was very, very useful. I still have on my desk your study. That's what we used to discuss among our own uh, ministries. We have the, uh, the Ministry of Trade and Industry. We have the Ministry of Finance and Economic Planning. We have the One Development Board. And we sat down together and worked out, I say, well, how do we develop industries that can consume this kind of energy which is anticipated in a few years to come? So now we brought it actually to a higher level. We are now being coordinated by the Prime Minister uh, to make sure that we can look industry by industry, whether it is uh, in mining, whether it's in manufacturing, those uh, other industries, especially in the, constructions, uh, in the construction industry, to see which ones we can support to increase the capacity and also attract more others that are more energy consuming. And that's why right now we are bringing uh, some of the companies that are doing manufacturing, the ceramics, that are producing construction industries, including the cement industries, which are also in the beginning in terms of consuming the energy. We have now a list of the companies that we must support to produce energy so that they can have the highest demand that we need. And now everybody is sensitizing the government to show that whatever we produce, we can be able to save. And it is working out. We are seeing now demand moving very fast as also produce more energy, uh, which you anticipate in the few years to come. 
Thank you for mentioning the work that we've done together, Minister, and indeed tackling the demand side of the energy equation sometimes is the hardest because it's the hardest to predict, but indeed it's impressive the way that you've made it a focal point of your planning strategy. Minister, let's, let's close on a topic that you launched when you were Minister of Finance and Economic Planning in 2016, the 2050 vision for Rwanda and its focus around a knowledge-based economy and how that would lift you from a poor country to one that would have upper middle income, uh, an upper middle income population. How did you develop the strategy and how is it going? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, this is the second vision that we had. The first vision was uh, Vision 2020. That was based from the situation we are coming in, as you know, from the genocide and knowing how Rwanda was. Um, 1995, uh, our economy had completely collapsed. It had, uh, the economy had declined by 50%, inflation at 65%, poverty levels at 78%. It was a bad situation. So the vision was to put us actually in line. What do we focus on? Where are we heading? So we decided that by the year 2020, we should be a lower middle income country. And at that point, we were working with that kind of vision. So that one has been done. Uh, economy had been growing at 8% on average. Uh, even last year, actually, it went beyond 10%. But what we wanted was another generation of vision. What kind of, what should we expect? So our vision, is actually aiming to become a, an upper middle income by the year 2035 and in high income country uh, with, a, with a, at least per capita income of over 12,000 US dollars uh, by the year 2050. So we had to set, we set our targets on how to reach the upper middle income as uh, where we'll be expecting per capita income of 4,000 US dollars per person per year. And we, chose the areas that are going to drive the economy to that level. But what we see, and also given our comparative advantage, is that services sector is becoming very critical. As I mentioned, the area of science, technology, adding value and using science as much as we can, the financial services and other areas that will, uh, that will promote the services becomes very critical. And that's why it has been consistent. We started at a low base, and now, uh, at this moment in time, the service sector contributes 48%, and we expect it by the year 2050 to have reached really 60% as a contribution to our GDP. Agriculture will be below 30%, and uh, industry will be contributing about 30%. So we see this one here becoming very relevant, and that's why we have introduced so many areas, uh, including the areas of tourism, where our conference tourism uh, last year was the second on the African continent. But we are also into other areas that contribute uh, to the sector. It's very, very important, and we, we see this one as a big value addition uh, to our economic growth. Minister, what's striking is the way that aspirations have so driven the strategy that you've pursued, and those aspirations have been translated into specific policies. At a time when the COVID pandemic has caused countries to close borders, you focused on trade, but ways in which to do it safely. It's fascinating the focus that you've placed on resuscitating the service sector 
allowing it to grow because it's a foundation for how you use the resources of Rwanda most effectively. And it's interesting how you've connected that to the role of government to provide public goods while depending on the private sector to, to drive investment for growth. A tremendous story that you tell about Rwanda, the path that you've traveled, the future that you're aspiring to. Thank you so much for joining us on these Sierra Week conversations. The Minister of Infrastructure of Rwanda, Claver Gatete. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sierraweek.com.